Hello, and welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I'm Pastor Greg Miller, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit NHF Church and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoyed this message. 4th grade history class. That was when the turning point for me and my love of history really came about. Mrs. Menzies taught my 4th grade class and she just had a deep love of history. And she didn't care so much about the dates that you had to memorize because that's what we tend to think with history at certain dates at certain times, certain kings, queens, events. She would go in general terms of this era and using 50 to 100 years or gaps and just made history come alive. And so ever since fourth grade, I've really had an enjoy and a deep love to read history. And mainly that history is about how did things come about? Because if you know the history of an era or a place, you kind of know how it is and why it is the way it is in the present. And the other thing about history is most people who like history tend to have a favorite genre of history. I know some of you are already bored out of your mind. History, why would I read history? Because it tells you something tells a story. And history is really a narrative of telling people and places and stuff that has happened. And so for me, I love the ancient history. So the Hittites, the Hivites, the Persians, the Babylonians, and somebody like the Hiv who, these are all ancient groups and ancient powers. And because of how they lived and what they did is a direct correlation to how we have the world in which we live in today. You look at the imperial age when Britain owned one quarter of the world, and that is why some of the hostilities, when you look at Africa, why is it broken down in such disjointed ways, and why are tribes broken down? Because you had an imperial power say, well, this is the line. Without taking into consideration, there's tribes on both sides of this line, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when you understand history, you understand why culture existed, how it existed, how long, and what happened, you see the present in kind of a new light doesn't justify the present, but you understand how it got there and why people think the way they do. And so when we read scripture, it's kind of the same way. We have to do two things. One of the biggest things is context. If you don't know the context, then you take the scripture, you can make it say whatever you want to say, and that's no good for anybody. Or you read it and you're like, what is that? Why would they even put that there? And so context is key. And the other thing I would always say to, is important is 2 Timothy 3.16. We have to keep in mind, which says all scripture is God breathes, useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Meaning it's not just one side of the Bible, the new or the old, that's good. All of it's good. The Old Testament points to Jesus. And the New Testament says this is why the new covenant with Jesus is better than the old covenant. But all of it is good. But it's context and understanding who wrote it, why they write it, and what were they writing in, because we tend to take the present reality and our values and our morals and our thoughts and implant them 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or 8,000 years ago on ancient civilizations. Why would they do that? That makes no sense. Well, yeah, to you and I, certain things they did would make no sense. But to them, it made absolute sense. And so as we understand context and culture, we have to understand that when we're reading Ephesians, this was written in the 70s, 60s to 70s AD after death. So Jesus was born 0 AD is when they chronicle dates. And so 33 AD, he was dead at 33 years of age. 
And further on, these books of the New Testament were written. And so Paul, who wrote it, was around when the apostles who walked and talked with Jesus were also around. He also lived in the Roman culture and had a great understanding of it. And so when we read this next part, it's not some of the easiest times. It's caused a lot of issues in the world. It's had its defenses in American history of defending slavery. And at other points, it has arguments against slavery. And so we're going to look at the slave passage in Ephesians 6 that tends to give people heartburn. But if we can keep in mind context, context of why is Paul writing? What is he exactly saying? Where does God really line up with slavery? And where is Paul lining up with slavery? And how do the two marry together in harmony? And then how, after we understand that, then we can look at the present and how does it apply to us today? Because if we just look at it and say, how does this apply to me? It doesn't. We get, we miss the point. And so we try to aim at who is the author? What are they saying? What's this about? And the truth is, slavery in the Roman world was very complex. The Roman civilization was one of the greatest empires that ever exists in the world. They cornered the market on the Mediterranean. It was pretty much their swimming pool. They owned it from the northern tip of Africa all around Israel to the bottom part of Europe. That was their sea. And so they owned most of the world, and 60 million were probably slaves in the Roman Empire. But the problem is when I say slaves, most of us tend to think 1860s, American Civil War, slavery. And that's the wrong way to view slavery in this context because it is not the same. There is elements that were absolutely just a part of that, but it's a completely different view and understanding of the culture of the time to understand what was slavery, what was it about. In fact, major cities, Rome, Corinth, the book we're reading is Ephesians. It's written to the city of Ephesus, the church. One-third of those populations were probably slaves. And so if we think and keep that context in mind, you have to look at why would someone willingly go into slavery because people did that. And the word slave and bondservant go hand in hand. And so when you read this text in 6, starting in verse 5, it says, Bondservant, I'm reading out of the ESV, yours more say, slave, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart as you would Christ." And we can read that and think, is the Bible promoting slavery? And we immediately go, at least I did initially, American Civil War, slavery, mistreatment, abuse. That did happen in Rome. That did happen in the Roman because you have people in the world who are evil. They take full advantage. But slavery was actually good for a couple of reasons in the Roman Empire that you might not realize. In fact, many times, think indentured servants. So if I'm growing up in the Roman Empire or if I'm around the Roman Empire and I have no money to my name, many times people would then say, work out an agreement with someone who owned land, who had money, who had wealth, to say, for the next 10 years, I'll work your 100 acres, and at the end of the 10 years, I get 10 of those acres. Some sort of agreement of that sort would be worked and agreed to, and so then I would sell myself, in a sense, to the landowner with agreed-upon rights that at the end of that 10-year period, I get 10 acres of my land that I own. And so it would allow me to then acquire wealth working with them. My wife likes the, uh, the 1860s, 1700s, downtown Abbey era. So we've been watching stuff like that on the TV at times, and I'm like, oh my goodness, Victorian era drama. But it's actually really relevant to today because they have the high class, the gentry class, and the nobles and the lords who own these manors and the servants that they pay their wages. And others live on the land and they cultivate it, but they're paid. 
And it's a similar concept here in Rome is that at the same time, you would indenture yourself to a landowner with agreed upon terms, or it was a debt payoff. I have a lot of debt, so I can't pay it, so I'll work for you. I will sell myself to you for so many years of service. You even find this in Genesis when Jacob says, I have no money for his bride and for his father-in-law. He says, I'll work for you for her hand in marriage. He goes, okay. Then he tricks him and he gives the wrong daughter to him and he has to work longer to get the wife that he wanted. You can read all about that in Genesis, but it's that concept. The other part of that was a bondservant. If you didn't have money, you didn't come provide for your family, you would tell someone and go into an agreement saying, I will bring my family. We'll work the land. You feed us, you clothe us, you take care of us. It was agreed upon. And so I could bring my family and they would have food, they would have shelter, they'd have clothing and they would have sustainability. And then the overclass, the Lord class then would be able to then have, they would make a profit and there was agreed upon. At other points, you volunteered to gain citizenship into Rome. At Rome, you weren't just born into it. You could buy it, but you had to earn enough money to buy the citizenship. At other points, you could work your way with someone of a Roman citizen status to gain citizenship. Was there people who took advantage of this? Absolutely. Remember that life was not very highly valued, especially as children. And so when you get to Rome, when you get to Ephesus and Corinth, the reality was that within the first year of life, you could really take a baby and say, I don't want them anymore, and take them to the trash heaps and leave them there. And you had other groups who would come to those trash heaps and collect the male and female babies, raise them to create slaves, whether they were gladiators, whether they're temple prostitutes, whether they were just sold on the market, whatever it would be, you would have that going along as well. And when you had other civilizations that Rome incorporated and conquered, they would become slaves. But reality was that many slaves actually had their freedom. One commentator writes this, the fact is that at the time of the Christian era and the writing of Ephesians, sweeping changes had been introduced that radically improved the treatment of slaves. Slaves under Roman law in the first century could generally count on eventually being set free. Very few ever reached old age as slaves. Slave owners were releasing slaves at such a rate that Augustus Caesar introduced legal restrictions to curb the trend. And despite this, inscriptions indicate that almost 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. And what is more, while the slaves remained his master's possession, he could own property, including other slaves. So you realize you could be a slave, you can go to the market and buy your own servants and your own slaves so that he could invest, save to purchase his own freedom. In fact, the nouveau rich extravaganzas of ex-slaves scandalized the old money Bostonian Romans. We must also understand that being a slave did not indicate one's social class. Remember, we're in America. We naturally go to the Civil War era where slavery was at its worst, which caused the whole Civil War In reality here, slaves were not regarded. You had your separation, blacks over here, whites over here. But in this culture and in this context, slaves were regularly accorded the social status of their owners. So if your owner was wealthy, politically active, of noble birth, guess what the slaves were considered? Noble. They were of high class. And regarding outward appearance, it was usually impossible to distinguish a slave from a free person. A slave could be a custodian, a salesman, a CEO, and many slaves lived separately from their owners. And finally, selling oneself into slavery was commonly used as a means of obtaining Roman citizenship 
gaining entrance into society. Roman slavery in the first century was far more humane and civilized than the American African slave practice in this country much later. And you realize that, and when you read it with context and with new eyes, it makes the text understandable to say, okay, he's not condoning slavery. One other tidbit of history on a little rabbit trail is that at this point, the governor of Israel, that area, Judea, Palestine area, was a guy by the name of Felix. What I learned in reading through this and studying this, which was really neat, is that Felix was a bondservant, slave to Caesar. And after working with Caesar and becoming so ingrown in his family and so beloved in his freedom, he gave him a high political office of a governorship over the land of Judea, who actually Felix is the one who sent Paul to Rome to meet with Caesar when he appealed. And so when you realize this, that slavery, yes, is not a good thing, but it was a tool used by people and not in the way that we understand it, it begins to make a little bit more sense Because then how does, if Paul is writing this, how does then God view slavery? If we ask that question, because arguments have been made throughout history that God condones it. There's arguments I've heard back in the day that the mark of Cain when he killed Abel was to make him black. Wrong. That is a false belief and a false point. But that's where people's minds go. How do we explain it? We want to explain it and we think this. So how does God view it? If you were to hold your finger here on on Ephesians 6 and jump a couple of passages to the next book over through Thessalonians, you'll read 1 Timothy. The difference between these two books, Ephesians is written to a church. All of us here, church. Timothy is written to the pastor, Tim. So it's it's a mentor. Tim is mentor is Paul. Paul is writing to his mentee. Tim, who is a pastor, it's to him. And he says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1, he says, Now we know that the law is good, the old covenant law, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, You highlight that, work that. Paul is telling Timothy, the law is good. It's good against those. It's mainly for those to hold the line, say, this is what's good, this is what's not. And he puts those that are not as enslavers right in there, right in the mix of that, who sell human beings back and forth. And he's saying, Tim, that's not how God views people. God views everyone as fearfully and wonderfully made. You read Psalm 139. At male and female, you read in Galatians, there's no distinction to God in regards to class. Male and female, he created them, and they're all within God's viewpoint of saying we are co-equal and co-heirs. We have different roles to play, yes, but to God, we are all of high value and of high worth. And he's telling Tim individually as the pastor of this church, he's saying, look, the law is good, but this is how I view the enslavers are actually roped into these sinners Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, the glory of God, blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. And he's saying reality is all of these things are actually against what God designed. But remember, 1 Timothy is written to an individual, Tim, as he pastors the church and as he's working and discipling within that church body. Ephesians is written to a whole church body, which means the church body is made up of who? Men, women, slaves, free, 
nobles, politicians, all of them. And the reality is the world that we live in, though that's wrong, how do we still live in the world in which we live and find ourselves? So if you were a slave in the church of Ephesus, if you were a bondservant, you're saying, well, I know God's against us, but I'm in it. How in the world am I supposed to live in this mess? I get it's wrong. My master might actually be at church with me this morning. How do we do this? How do we live this way? And Paul is saying to the church, and he starts off at the end of chapter 5 specifically. You read that in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he starts there and said, all together as a church, we're to be mutually submitting to care and look after one another. And then he dives into the husband and wife relationship of what that looks like of mutual submission. And then he goes on to the kids and how you mutually submit there with your children. And Pastor Greg did a great job last week looking at that context of those principles of how do you raise kids in the world that we live in? And then he goes on to, okay, some of you find yourself in this era of life, bond servants and slaves, context. I recognize you are here. So how do you, as a slave, as a bond servant, thrive? in the place that you find yourself. And he says, bond servants, you're to obey your earthly masters with fear and with travel, with earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And what you find here in chapter five and chapter six is this mutual submission, which I've stated, humility, sacrificial love, others centric, others first. And the truth is you and I have this, which wasn't afforded to the church in Ephesus way back when. We have the old, we have the new, we have the complete understanding of Scripture. And sometimes when we read this, we lose sight of the beauty that it is, the freedom that it entails, the life-giving power, the life-altering and worldview-changing, and we tend to gloss over it. Oh yeah, of course that's wrong. Well, in the Roman world, what I just read was revolutionary to the reality of the situation Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. The truth is we got to change how and what we work for. If we change out bond servant to someone who is a employee, now it begins to make a little more sense to us in our context. So if you put employee instead of bond servant, employee, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. In reality, don't cheat your employer. And that's what he's telling the slaves and the bondservant. He's saying, look, when you work, when you obey your master, when you go there, do it with such a sincere heart as if it were Christ. Even if you are a little mistreated, even if it's not the greatest, you're to do it wholeheartedly as if for Christ with fear and trembling, with sincerity, meaning it's not just, oh, when the boss is looking at me or when I'm over being overseen, I'm doing everything right. But other side of that, I'm just lollygagging around. It's like, no, you, you focus your attention. You do everything to the best of your ability because it's not about the boss you're working for. It's how and what we work for. It's thinking of an ownership mentality as you're an employee, What's an ownership mentality? What's the difference? Well, an employee sometimes will say, well, that's not my job, so I won't do it. I see the mess. I see the toilet paper on the floor. I see this, but it's not my job, so I'm just not going to take care of it. An ownership mentality sees the thing, even if it's not in their job description, but they recognize something's wrong, something needs to be taken care of, 
and they own it. They take care of it. And they continue to do it because even though it's not in their job description, they have a very narrow focus, they continue to take ownership. They continue to strive for better. They continue with sincere heart and fear and trembling to do the best job they can do because it's Christ. In verse 6, it says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Now he twists the words yet again. Slaves, be submissive to your master. Do it with sincere heart. Don't do it out of eye service as people pleasers, but do it as slaves of Christ. And he's putting, what is our view? What do we become? When we come to know Christ, we, in a sense, become God's bond servants. We say, I can't live life alone. God, you know who it is. You're the noble class. You are the king of kings. And you know what? I can't cover, so I'm going to come live for you. Can I just spend eternity with you and cultivate the land? And will you feed me? Will you clothe me? Will you protect me? And Paul is twisting it from saying, look, you who are bondservants, don't be people pleasers, but be, do everything as if you, were a, you are a bondservant of Christ. Yes, you are loved. Yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Focus your eyes on God. And the reality is, that's who we are. We are bondservants. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm a slave to Christ. Depends on your translation. A bondservant, I'm a servant. The whole point is back is I'm owned by God. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Trust me, do everything. Colossians says this, do everything in remembrance of who God is and what he has done it continues in verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing, verse 8, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whatever he is a bondservant or free. So whether you're a slave or not, all your good works, God sees. Galatians speaks of it as you reap what you sow. You want to reap something in due course, it takes time. You have to cultivate. You have to lay the ground. You have to prep the ground. And sometimes the harvest, you don't get to see. You plant the seed. You lay the foundation to where it is years later, maybe even after your death, you don't even know that other people come to know Christ. And other people are affected because of what you have done. And God sees just as Ephesians 2, 8 says, and 8 through 10, God has prepared good works for us ahead of time. And so if we're all workers, which we are at some point or another, that we are not just bond servants to our earthly master, we're not just employees, we're bond servants to Christ. And it matters then how we work. It matters then how we approach our job. It matters then our attitude at our jobs and what we're doing. And I'm not saying you take abuse at your job. I'm not saying you can't, you shouldn't. You stand up for what's right, absolutely. But other times, it's the mundane. It's the boring. In college, I had to work multiple jobs to make ends meet. I still took out student loans, and my wife bailed me out when we got married. <laughs> but I worked at Lowe's. That is the worst job I ever had. And it's not that Lowe's is a bad company. Um, it was the most boring thing I've ever done. I had to work nine hours, wasn't allowed to work eight. I had to take a mandatory one-hour lunch break, which I didn't want to take, and I was a cash register, so literally, if there's no one in the store, I had to stand for eight hours like this at my cash register to the point where I said, can I just go push carts outside? I know it's 80, 90 degrees. In Greensburg, PA, I just want to push carts. I am so sick of this job. It is so boring and mundane, but it was a paycheck. 
and it covered my school bills that semester, and it covered me to be able to have gas and insurance for my car. It was not fulfilling. I didn't like it. And yet there were people there who God placed me around for a reason. It's the same way I worked at Ruby Tuesdays, which I actually enjoyed. I didn't like it all the time, but I worked at Ruby Tuesdays. Another one here closed, but I was the best salad bar attendant you ever saw. And if you know me, you know I don't like vegetables, which is why I'm the best salad bar attendant. I never ate it. But it was fun to get around people. It was fun to just interact with the staff. And as I got to become a server, I would bust tables for the other servers. And they said, why are you doing that? That's not your job. And the reality is, it's like, no, it's not. But the quicker we can clear the table and set a new person, then we all win. And I don't know how many conversations I had with people that in the context of a group, I wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily mock me for my faith, but sometimes they would. Sometimes a question would get raised. In one particular moment, we had someone who was gay working on staff. He was a great, great employee. Never had a hard, bad thing to say about him. And as we're both back in the back collecting our food for our tables, one other server walks in the room and says, Nick, doesn't the Bible say that homosexuality is a sin and so he's going to go to hell? He turns around and walks out. Now, what am I supposed to do with that? As I'm standing there with my food in my hands, hot plates, he grabs his food and he turns around and walks out the door as it's in the busy of dinner rush. And it's in moments like that you have a choice that even in the jobs, we do our jobs well because we don't know the witness that we are to those around us, which allowed me to come back around at the end of the night to talk to Jonathan and say, yes, what he said is true. Yes. Is it a sin? Yeah, absolutely. Except there's lots of sins. Yours just maybe more public than other people's. And the reality is God still loves you and you are still fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'm sorry that he said that. And if that hurts your feelings. And he appreciated it. We didn't have a conversation again, but we had a good working relationship even from that point. And all of that goes back to say is that we might find ourselves in work or seasons of life where the job just, let me just say it sucks because it does. And the truth is God has placed you there, maybe for a season or a time to prep you and prepare you for what is ahead. My biggest frustration at Cedarville when I was there was that I'm at school in a little bubble and there's two cities 20 miles in either direction who don't know Jesus and I just want to go tell people and work with them. But it was preparation of four years at Cedarville to prepare me. And even though I didn't find fulfillment all the time, it was preparing me. The job was preparing you. Time to make a change, time to affect an individual who you don't know may come to Jesus because of how you live and how you work in such a manner. In fact, there's a book in here called Philemon. It's a letter Paul writes when you read Colossians. If you read Philemon, there was two. It was a two-for combo. Colossians was to the church. Philemon was to a specific guy named Philemon who was in the church, who happened to be in a church, who happened to be a slave master. And one of his slaves, who whatever the agreement was, we don't know, stole and hurt Philemon, took the money and ran, ran all the way to Rome. And he would have been around Christians because, oh, because Philemon was a Christian in the church. So Onesimus knew the church, and whatever he did, he took and he ran to Rome. And he finds himself in Rome pretty much as a beggar at some point. He squanders whatever it was. But I imagine, this is my version of putting this on it, is that in the midst of spending whatever he has done in Rome, he remembers Philemon, and he remembers the church, and he seeks out the church. And some point in Rome, 
he becomes a Christian and he meets Paul and he helps Paul and Paul sends him back because he owns it and says, I've wronged him. I need to go back. And slaves at that point, if you're a runaway, other things, they could brand you and mark you as a thief, as a liar, whatever. Again, it wasn't always great. Even though the context, there was good reasons for why they did it, doesn't mean it was always good. So Paul writes a letter and vouches Bronismus, the slave. And we don't know what happens to Onismus. We don't know what Philemon's point is. But years later, there is a, a, um, a leader in the church, Alexandria, I believe, over in the Eastern Europe, whose name is Onismus. The thoughts and beliefs are that that was the former slave. And when Philemon received the letter, set him free, didn't hold it against him. And Paul's point is, remember, change how and what we work for. You control your attitude. It's one thing you can control. I can hate this. I don't like this. But the reality is you may not be able to change anything. You can change your outlook. You can change the way you view it. That you can do. And the reality is, too, if grass looks greener somewhere else, water your own lawn. Grass always looks greener elsewhere when you start looking like that. But you don't know what's underneath their lawn. It could be a whole septic system. And that's what's making it really green, but really smelly. And so you water, you cultivate where God has you in preparation for what are you going to do in the future. And you don't know when that is. God's pretty clear. If you start praying for clarity, I promise it becomes very abundantly clear. But you ask, and you go in with a change of how and what we work for. Finally, it's obedience. It's just being faithful where you're at. God says, just be faithful. If you're faithful with a little, watch why I don't open other doors. Why don't I open other opportunities? And sometimes just faithful. It's like, how long? I don't know. And you can ask the why question. Please do. But sometimes it's not about the why. What? What is God teaching me in the midst of this season of life, in this season of work that I find myself and not wildly enjoying anything? And finally, it's remembering who I represent. In the midst of this, as you read through this first section, bondservants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling because the reality is a church is made up of these people who are bondservants. Do this as you would Christ, remembering that you're a bondservant of Christ, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive back from the Lord, whatever he is bondservant or he is free. You reap what you sow. But if you were to hold here and go to the left, you find 2 Corinthians 5. And 5.17 says, therefore, you're a new creation in Christ. I mean, you're not defined by your past, but in Jesus, you are new. And he goes further. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning he's gifted you and me, not just me, not just the staff, but you are therefore his ambassadors. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You change how and what we work for. We become ownership mentality. We look at things differently, we control our attitude, and we're remembering who I represent. You don't represent yourself. You represent God. You're his ambassador wherever you work. Whatever you're doing, stay at home, mom, doesn't matter. You're still representing him. Whether you're an associate, whatever it is, 
You represent God in every form. And there is not one form better than the other. Stay-at-home parent, guess what? You represent God to your kids. You're raising them. You're a CEO, you represent God. You're a mail delivery person, you represent God. You're a pastor, I represent God. Very visual, absolutely. You work at home, you're retired. You're not done yet because you're not dead. And I got lots of projects for you. Truth is, remembering who I represent. I don't work for my master here. I, don't work for, I work for God, his good pleasure. He has called me to be his ambassador. He's called you to where you find yourself in your work environment to be his hands and his feet. And finally, at the end of Ephesians chapter six, as he brings it to a close, he, does it, he brings it back in verse nine, masters. So now he's addressing those who own slaves, who own these bond servants. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Power and position are always used, should be, to serve others. That's the truth. Those in positions of authority, you serve those below you. Our greatest asset at New Hope is your staff team. My role is to empower and equip staff team to do their role, because if you like what we're doing, a lot of it has to do with what they're doing. And so my role is, how do I empower? How do I serve them? It's all about servant leadership. Title really doesn't matter. It's servant leadership. You see this all the time in the Gospels with Jesus. You read John 13. You read about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Servant leadership. Walking alongside people in the trenches and giving them an attaboy and girl, saying, hey, you got this. I'm with you. Yeah, it may rest and fall on my shoulders, but the truth is, it's all about serving others. And in the church here, you had that issue of, well, we're one in Christ, so I'm not, how am I supposed to go to work on Monday when you're my master and we're both brothers and sisters in Christ and we're co-equal, co-heirs? And so you had this snobbish thing going on that Paul is also stamping down and saying, no, the roles in the church, absolutely, you're co-equal, co-heirs, but you still, when you go to work, there's still a submission, a mutual submission. They have to do their role. You have to do yours you don't take advantage of them as the master saying, hey, we're, we're buddies because we're in the same small group at church. No, you still got to work. But likewise, masters, you're still supposed to care for those who work under you and serve under you. Recognizing you have influence no matter where you find yourself is the other issue. Be an associate, stay-at-home mom or dad, as I mentioned, a construction worker, CEO, be it as a parent in general, a student, a teacher, a garbage worker, business owner, truth is, we all have influence. That's what leadership is. It's influence. And your circle of influence may not be as large as some in the world or you strive for, but the real truth is, every one of us has a sphere of influence. People watching. And you have the opportunity to display Christ and influence those people. People will work for the what, and they'll give their life for the why. They'll work for the what. Have to. That's what it is. But give them the why behind it. They will give their life for that. And so it's being mindful of that. That power and position are always about serving others. And so Paul says, look, there is mutual submission. It's how it looks like in the workforce. And you who are bond servants in the church, who are in a culture that is okay with slavery, and some of it's healthy and positive because of what it allows you to do. Some of it's evil too. There's no candy coating slavery. People still took advantage, even if there was legal rights. 
And so when we read that, we look at bond servants and okay, in the culture they live, some found themselves in that scenario. God doesn't view slavery as positive at all, very negative. Truth is, we live in a world that's broken. People find themselves at different spots. And so in this manner, if we look at it from a point of you as a bond servant of Christ, you as a worker in the field, whatever you find yourself in, there's this mutual submission that is so revolutionary to the culture of the day that was all about you as an individual too. Now it's others-centric. It's servant leadership that we tend to lose focus because, yeah, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. But in the day and age, that would have been totally radical and totally different than anything anybody has ever seen. And that's what the church is about, to be a beacon of hope and light, to be different in the world we live. Yes, it's going to get worse. It's bad. Okay, I get that. It'll get worse. We just shine brighter as we live differently in it.